Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my colleagues, Julia Georgia with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University, and Dalbu Rohaj, also with AI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have emerged along the line that runs from the Black Sea to the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, north to south, south to north, the line is the same. This is the Eastern Front. And we also talk about why those issues are important to the United States. Our guest today, our friend today, is Ivana Stratner, who uh, is also a fellow at AEI, but also at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Uh, Ivana might also have been one of the hosts of this podcast, uh, but she uh, sensibly escaped to a better life uh, elsewhere. But we're we're, uh, very pleased to have her back. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, and welcome to today's session. Um, Dalibor, why don't you begin the conversation this morning? Sure. Uh, Ivana, it's, it's great to have you on the, on the podcast that you helped create in in, in many ways. Uh, We spent a few episodes already talking about uh, Hungary and the Hungarian election that took place a week ago. Um, And uh, we mentioned in passing that there was also another election in another country, not far from from, from Hungary, where uh, both uh, in terms of the outcome and in terms of the foreign policy outlook, there are very interesting parallels between 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 Hungary and that other country, which is your home country of Serbia. And we wanted to talk to you about what's been happening in Serbia. Uh, what... <laughs> That's what's going to happen in Serbia. Ignore. <laughs> I think we should just leave that in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The hound of the Balkans barks. That's, That's what right. I wanted to just say. <laughs> <laughs> So, 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 let us uh, just get us started on on why should Americans uh, at this particular geopolitical moment care about you know the, the Serbian election that took place last week that brought back the incumbent uh, and or kept him in the office, Alexander Vucic. Well, the Americans should care because Europeans don't care. So, to put it, to put it in a very straightforward manner. Um, but more broadly, like why the Americans should care about the Balkans, that's a bigger question rather than about Serbia. Um, certainly what we are seeing right now in the Balkans in terms of the Russian influence, but also the Chinese influence, you really, really undermine the process of the Euro-Atlantic trans- uh, partnerships. They want to undermine European Union. They want to undermine NATO. So, and let's not forget that within uh, the Western Balkans countries, you have places such as Montenegro or North Macedonia that are the latest uh, NATO member states, and they can really serve as a weak links for NATO. We also have countries all other like uh, uh, Western Balkans countries that are aspiring EU member states. So this is another reason why we should actually pay attention to the Balkans, but more importantly, also because of strategic um, issues such as Putin, for example, he's more than willing to find another soft underbelly 
um, in Europe to uh, challenge the West. And this is why I was very concerned about the Balkans last year. Um, today, I have a little bit different approach and we can talk about this, how my security concerns have shifted, uh, but they are still, you know, they will still remain intact also because of the Chinese influence. Uh, so it's, it's a very holistic, it's a big topic. Maybe one thing that would be useful at the very beginning would be to just clarify for 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 the sake of our listeners' benefit, uh, you know where Serbia stands. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's an EU candidate country. It is an it EU has, country. Uh, it has a government which, uh, in spite of nominally progressing with with its EU accession, has also been able to extract all kinds of concessions from China and Russia over the years. And has also played a regional role, uh, which I mean can be sort of traced back to the 1990s. And on and overall, this this president Alexander Vucic has sort of pretended to be the sort of reasonable, moderate figure, right? That, that sort of the the sort of first f- sort of superficial idea people get in the in the West. So, so so if you maybe just could give us a little bit of sort of background on where where these sort of basic parameters sort of stand in. In, 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 in the Serbian situation. Um, okay, so I'm going to tell you first this parameter until today, and I'm going to tell you my projection, what's going to happen next. Um, so let me first go back to also what we wrote in our piece, where we compared um, Hungary and Serbia. So um, politics in Serbia is a pure business. Uh, so you have... You have uh, President Vucic, who was during the 90s, a far, far right person, very, very close to um, very, very close to the radical party um, who once, you know, stated for every Serb there will be that there was killed, like will be 100 Muslims killed. Um, and apparently in 2012, he shifted his rhetorics because he was in the opposition for um, many years, so he also wanted to, you know, be part of the political establishment. And the best way to sell your story is to basically claim that you're a pro-Western person. So he pledged, you know, he rapidly, he radically changed the rhetorics, and he pledged to br- to bring Serbia closer to the European Union. Um, and of course, it's very easy to do it in Serbia because information operations, just like in Russia. You don't only use them on a tactical level, you also use them on on operational level. So once you control, once you have a full media control, then you can easily shift the narratives in the way that you want. And for many years, um, um, he has been projecting this European, the European Union path uh, when he was negotiating with the West. But in reality, in Serbia, is that Serbia is not anymore a democratic country, according to the Freedom House. There is a huge problem with corruption and organized crime. So these are all internal issues uh, that Serbia is struggling with, let alone that uh, Serbia is rapidly moving towards far right. And one thing that you will notice when he won the elections last week, he openly stated that, you know, because of Ukraine, Serbia is moving towards far right. Um, and my question is, who has created the far right? 
in a country that is not a purely democratic country, I mean, it's very, very easy to create a far right. And the real question is also why? You need a far right movement because once you have something like that, you can project yourself to me, to remain in power and to project yourself as you are basically center right or center left and you are the only like a looking the only normal person in the government. So it's a very, very strategic thing um, that, uh, that the government has done. There is no really... Uh, pro-Western opposition in Serbia. If you, and that's something that really worries me more than anything else, because during the elections, when people ask me, who should I vote for over there? It was very difficult for me to give the answer because when it comes to foreign policy, they basically all argue the same thing. No NATO, um, the European Union, yes. But let me tell you this, you will rarely hear them saying, we want the European Union. And they say, we want European Union path. And of course, that's very logical thing because everyone wants EU funds. So why, you know, European Union uh, citizens are are funding different projects for green energies, feeding, you know, the population. Uh, the Russian government is investing in critical sectors such as energy, security, media, um, and very interestingly, also sports industry, because you need to also have a huge number of people that you can um, easily easily used for your your purposes. And also you have China uh, that also has been investing in critical infrastructures uh, with also illicit corrosive capital. So having said this, the situation in Serbia is very, very, uh, I, I would say really for a huge concern. But the problem is that without a pro Western, truly pro Western opposition, um, there is no the future of democratic and pro-Western Serbia. But one thing that I'm going to tell you, that I'm going to predict what's going to happen next. So you will see a major shift in Serbian politics over the next few weeks. I have already seen uh, observing information operations, how different messaging and narratives on social media have changed. All those bots that have served for uh, messaging, like they just shifted their rhetoric. So they are now, you know, anti-Russia, but they're protecting uh, China. And this is why they need this narrative. This narrative is very important because you need still to have um, a card available for negotiating with the West. And right now it's not very popular to negotiate with Russia, even though Russia will never leave because you will have your far right groups in the parliament. They're going to always protect Russia. So uh, you will actually see uh, a major shift in rhetorics, but not a major shift when it comes to facts. Ivana, you said your your security concerns had shifted in recent years, if I can paraphrase. Can you uh, describe that a little bit? Uh, what did they use? What were your concerns maybe five or more years ago? And how have they changed to today? So actually, my main security uh, shift has occurred in January. So I wanted to say that last year, I wrote a piece in which I argued that Russia was using the Balkans and preparing it to install a kiss in the region. Right now, as of today, I do not see an imminent threat 
that Russia poses to the Balkans, to the Western Balkans. This can, of course, you know, change any time, uh, because when people tell me Russia does not have a capability to wage a war on several fronts, Russia does not need tanks in the Balkans. Russia does not need weapons because the Balkans is absolutely full of weapons. Russia has been shipping weapons for years, anti-missile systems. I mean, even this weekend, uh, the Chinese, uh, they send anti-missiles to to Serbia, which are all very concerning things. So when people tell me Russia cannot wage a war on several fronts, that's not true, because what Russia needs to do, you already have, Russia has been fueling uh, tensions in the Balkans for years. Uh, they absolutely polarized the society using ethnic differences, using religious differences. And we already know, you know, during the 90s, how sensitive those issues are. So this was an excellent opportunity for Russia already to polarize society such that you just literally now need a tiny fire to... Uh, to make such a conflict and Russia has its own proxies in Montenegro. It installed the government. It was very, very close also to the Russian Orthodox Church and to the Serbian Orthodox Church. It was a huge mess over the past two years in, in Montenegro, uh, given the role of uh, the Russia's proxies over there. And let's not forget, Montenegro is a NATO member state. And then in Bosnia and Herzegovina, Russia played on two fronts. One was um, the Croats part, and the second part was uh, Republika Srpska and Dodik, who recently threatened secession um, and complete withdrawal for, from uh, institutions. So what else you need in the most sensitive area in the Balkans? Uh, you literally just need another Russian proxy to inflame conflict. So uh, I was very, I have to tell you, I was very, very concerned last year uh, about things that were occurring. Good thing is, after many years of French and German uh, appeasement in the Balkans, an absolutely awful policy that we can also discuss, I think the United States and the Biden administration in particular, but also the United Kingdom, even more importantly, they stepped in and they've been doing outstanding things. This morning, for example, uh, the United Kingdom decided to impose additional sanctions to the people who undermine uh, the stability of Bosnia and Herzegovina. So they are going to sanction people in Republika Srpska. The Biden administration was actually was a bipartisan, uh, it was a bipartisan decision to uh, impose sanctions on people in the Balkans who undermine security. And the Biden administration has been already uh, sanctioning people over there. You know, it's not certainly, you know, not enough, but it's better than nothing. So one thing that is missing in this chain is that we need European Union to step in and also start sanctioning people in the Balkans. Only then sanctions will really, really work. And of course, you know, people keep telling me in the Balkans, oh, you know, sanctions don't work. This is just going to harm our people. Uh, and that's the same rhetorics, you know, that Vladimir Putin is spreading inside Russia. Um and of course, you know, that's the easiest way to claim, you know, the sanctions don't work. We also have to be realistic because we cannot expect NATO to, you know, put like additional troops um, 
over there, although I have to admit the NATO uh, opened another base in Albania, um, uh, U4, they put extra personnel in Bosnia and Herzegovina a few weeks ago, and French, they were doing a bunch of exercises uh, also in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So this was a really, really good step. It was a step in the right direction to deter uh, Russia from installing further chaos in the Balkans. So this is precisely why I'm on this day very hopeful that things are going in the right direction. But the Balkans is still not out of uh, the crisis yet because there are still, you know, numerous opportunities for Vladimir Putin that and weaklings that he can exploit. Before we get into what else we could do from the Western side, you sort of already alluded to that. I want to ask you, because I think this is really a question that um, that is on many people's minds. I want to ask you about propaganda. Um, I remember I had you as a guest in uh, one of my classes last semester, and you talked about the brainwash um, and a bit shocked <laughs> students. Um, and we know that Vucic is, um, used to be the head of propaganda. And now we see all these images of um, Serbs um, protesting, taking to the streets with Russian flags um, in solidarity with basically Russian atrocities. And this is something that we see not just in the Balkans, not just in Serbia. We see bits and pieces in other places. We've seen it in Germany this weekend and, and not only um, and, and even closer to sort of Ukraine and the Eastern Front. But looking just at Serbia, can you help us make sense of this combo between Vucic's propaganda and his affinities to Russian Russia overall and how they overlap and what the result of that is in terms of brainwash and what people overall in Serbia are thinking? I love this question, and I'll tell you why. Because <laughs> in 1999, during the NATO's intervention, Vucic um, was in power, and he was the Minister of uh, Information uh, during the Milosevic government. Um, and he really, really understands the role of media. And whether we like it or not, I have to admit one thing, that Serbia has probably is, maybe it is a regional power in terms of hard power, but Serbia is one of the most powerful information operations countries in Europe. Uh, you really have to look back already in 1999 to see, and a bunch of documents are now available even during the war, how powerful propaganda uh, they, they had over there and how many times you know they tricked the West. In the context of what's happening in 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 Russia and Ukraine, uh, as soon as Vucic came to power, he understood that number one thing is to keep this power. You need to provide. You need to have media con like a full media control. Um, and there is there are very, very few available free media right now um, in, 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 in Serbia, but also elsewhere in the Balkans. And Russia also understood this thing. I mean, they, they've been heavily investing in media uh, and in information operations. I mean, there is also the Sputnik office um, in Serbia. 
to put now things in the context of what's happening right now in terms of um, information security over there. I mean, when the war started, the major media outlet, they stated basically um, that it was Ukraine's fault, you know, for the war. I mean, they're, they're really, really mirroring the Kremlin's rhetorics. Um, so this is nothing really new and the best way to do it you really need information operations to brainwash your people not to provide them with alternative views i mean one thing is if you for example take a look at even normal like a regular citizens of serbia who have like a twitter they have 30 40 50,000 followers and it's not because they are influencers but rather because that's one of a very few available places for serbian people and more broadly for people in the balkans to get the news uh, but it's still not enough because uh they're targeting not what pro-western people they need to target people that are really really aligned with with the views of of uh, the Vucic political party. Um, so everything which we're seeing in terms of far-right groups, in terms of protests, etc., it's a result of many years of working on this. They did not just, you know, walk up one day and you have like a Russian influence, uh, a huge Russian influence uh, in the Balkans. They've been working on that for more than a decade uh, Tensely. But also there is this thing, like there is a Slavic brotherhood that you can always use. There is uh, the Orthodox religion uh, that you can always use in, as an argument in terms of Russia-Serbia ties. Even though um, what unfortunately many people don't understand in the region, that Russia has never been uh, a friend of Serbia. Uh, I mean, they were the ones that supported also the sanctions in 1992. They didn't do anything in 1999. And even, you know, in terms of the Kosovo support, it has nothing to do with a true friendship. It has only to do with the Russian stand on Crimea and why they need um, um, uh, such a support in the United Nations, but also why they need a frozen conflict elsewhere in the Balkans, such as Bosnia, Republika Srpska, or, for example, uh, in, in Kosovo. I have actually two questions yes. for you, Ivana, but, but what you said was just absolutely fascinating. And, and I keep thinking about these these parallels, if you will, that it seem to exist between, between Serbia on the one hand and Russia, obviously, but also places like Hungary, namely uh, the extent to which the governments are really very strongly on top of, of what's happening in the media space and controlling access to information and sort of narratives that that, that, that tend to emerge and, 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 and capture public imagination. Uh, the sense of, you know, humiliation at the hands of the West that happened at different different junctures and and just that sort of nostalgia for former greatness, whether it's, you know, Great Hungary or, you know, this idea of Serbian world modeled very much after after the notion of a of a Russian world with with its sort of ramifications in terms of you know destabilizing Serbia's immediate immediate neighbors. Uh, but my, my two questions for you are first of all, if you could tell us a little bit more about what practical role Serbia has played in the current conflict in in, in Russia's war against Ukraine. So so we know I, 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 we, we know a few things. So, so namely that Serbia hasn't joined the, any of the anti-Russia sanctions. We also know that 
um, the Tesla airport in Belgrade, you know, a sort of reasonably sized regional hub is probably playing a very outsized role in, you know, enabling Russians to travel to the West. Um, so, so if you could sort of, you know, like tell us what's happening in, in, in that space. And secondly, you tweeted a few times over the past couple of days about uh, Chinese arms shipments coming to Serbia, uh, Chinese military planes arriving in Belgrade. Uh, so, you know, as our friends on a, on a friendly podcast, uh, the AI, uh, Danny Pletka and Mark Thiessen would, would, would say, what the hell is going on? And are those men for Serbia or for Russia? Okay, so first things first about Serbia's role in the Russian uh, war in Ukraine. Uh, this time around, uh, Serbia pledged that they would punish everyone who goes and fight in the bottle. So that's one thing that they don't want to have any direct role. Serbia officially wants to have a neutral military position, which brings me back, you know, to the Vucic standoff and his admiration for Josip Broz Tito and his policies, you know, during the former Yugoslavia, except for the fact that this is not a Cold War and under fact that Serbia is not Yugoslavia. And that Serbia is a landlocked country that is absolutely strategically unimportant to the West. Uh, so uh, there is. Let's not let facts intervene with myth, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these are the facts, right? So uh, that's that's one thing. Second thing, can you, for example, take a look at how Serbia was. Uh, uh, voting before in the United Nations, they always tend to, you know, to balance between East and West. Uh, this time around, they decided for the first UN General Assembly uh, resolution to, to support Ukraine. Um, and the reason for that is not because the strategy, you know, they be- suddenly became a pro uh, Ukrainian uh, government supporters, but rather because the resolution itself was very weak. The resolution itself never discussed sanctions. Serbia is the only country in Europe, as far as I'm aware, that decided not to impose sanctions on Russia. Um, so, and plus, if you read the text of the resolution, uh, you will actually find out that um, it perfectly fits the Serbian um argument for the 1999 NATO intervention. Uh, So I was not surprised about that. So as I mentioned, Serbia decided not to impose sanctions. That would happen in the United Nations um, uh, Human Rights Council. Uh, Serbia voted again, you know, to expel like Russia from the council. And uh, people were applauding this thing, including myself, except for the fact that that late evening I watched the interview where the Serbian president openly stated uh, that they had to do this because they received lots of pressures from the West. Uh, So that sort of, you know, shift uh, is not because of some moral reasons, but rather because of strategic reasons, because again, you know, Serbia needs the money from the European Union. That's, you know, number one thing. What was your second question about China, right? Yeah. So Chinese arms shipments that you noticed were arriving. Okay. So let me first start with Russia. Serbia decided uh, as soon as Vucic came to power uh, to... um, to rebuild the Serbian army for several reasons. Like everywhere else, you know, people in in Eastern Europe, they have this uh, 
you know, they, they love military. Uh, and it's always a good way to show, you know, that you are a strong man with powerful military. It can always buy additional votes. That's one thing. The second thing um, is that he decided to buy weapons from uh, Russia mainly. Um, and for example, Russia even sent uh, a famous S-400 uh, panzer system to Serbia for a military drill in 2019, regardless of American sanctions. Russia later on sent additional uh, panzer S-1M systems, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So Serbia, and he actually thanked Vladimir Putin for making Serbia 10 times stronger since 1999. Uh, but that was not enough because uh, he really loves to negotiate with Beijing, with Moscow, with Brussels and Washington, D.C. So uh, Serbia has very, very strong ties with, with China and uh, China definitely is using this opportunity uh, to uh, also irritate the West by Serbia because Serbia is not allergic to Beijing's money. For example, China was supposed to have the first military exercise in Europe with Serbia. That did not happen. But Serbia decided to buy additional drones and additional anti-missile systems that are equivalent to Russian S-300. And what I've heard, this is precisely what is shipped uh, this weekend when six uh, when six uh, planes actually landed on the on, on the Belgrade's air, airport, so uh, this is something that uh, that is old, but like a new old because this deal was already made last year. Um, and there are numerous other, you know, deals in technology sector that are also a threat to the West. So uh, this is uh, basically a new theater for Serbia to use to negotiate with the West now when, when, when Russia is not anymore a tangible, uh, a tangible item to negotiate with the West. Um, if, if I could sermonize briefly about, I, th I think this Chinese move, uh, over the weekend is very much more significant than people um, contemplate at this point. First of all, it was a serious piece of logistics um, on the part of the Chinese. They they flew these missile batteries in in a handful of uh, uh, giant cargo planes, clearly on sort of like very short notice. Um, they only landed once, I think, en route from China to uh, to Serbia. And you have to say that, uh, you know, one of the outcomes of the Ukrainian conflict, uh, especially if Eastern European, if, if Eastern Europe remains kind of a no man's land, is that China will be able to step in to replace Russia in, in a way that... Um, it could be over the course of time much more threatening than you know China's comprehensive national power, as the Chinese Communist Party would uh, phrase it, is far superior to that of of Russia's. And uh, so, as a symbol, as a statement, as a um, indicator, leading edge indicator of what may be around the corner, and in particular identifying Serbia as kind of a gateway uh, for Chinese power 
I mean, maybe we could return to this in a future show, but I think there's, you know, talking about how China could exploit the situation in Europe is something that we should consider. Absolutely, 100%. And I absolutely agree with you. It's not only a matter of, you know, the, the matter of, you know, the descent like anti-missile system. This is rather a big statement to the West. Um, and this is really nothing new because, again, you know, if you look back, like uh, China has been investing heavily in Serbian critical sectors, but also in Montenegro um, and elsewhere in the Balkans. Uh, and the reason for that is because unlike Russia, they would not love to see the Balkans as part of the European Union. China would love to see all those countries as part of the European Union to have access to the European Union market. But only that, like in terms of security, like China actually uh, has um, started something that's called like a smart cities. So all my friends from Belgrade, you know, they keep reporting, you know, that it's really like a surveillance uh, machine over there uh, in, in Serbia. I'm more than happy, you know, to speak with you maybe next time about uh, what China is doing uh, in the Balkans. Before we let you go, maybe you mentioned briefly a bit earlier sanctions from the EU and, uh, and, and new sanctions from, um, from the transatlantic side, if we can call it that. So mm, kind of as a wrap up, what, where do you see in brief the shortcomings when it comes to the EU particularly? And and then beyond that, the United States and the UK in terms of what can be done more and what are we not doing um, to rail in Serbia and diminish this risk of Serbia overall as a regional power and specifically in cooperation with Russia and China? So to begin with, you have to work with the government you have, not with the government you wish to have. And unfortunately, that's a bad, bad, that's a bad news over there. Every time somebody uses that analogy, there's always bad news that's about to I, I apologize, <laughs> but that's absolutely the truth. I mean, even looking back, like even in Yugoslavia, I mean, the United States was supporting Tito, but also Slobodan Milosevic, you know, as a someone as, as people that were the only people able to stabilize the region so uh and unfortunately you know it didn't end up well so having said that the bad news is that you have to work with the government that you have not the one that you wish to have um and having said that you don't have lots of maneuver because Vucic has also he's a very very smart politician he has been in politics for decades he really understands very well his own people and uh the global community and he always has another card that he can play against the west hoping you know that the european union actually does not really care about that so uh number one i think that uh the united states the, the united kingdom as well as the european union have to co continue is to imposing sanctions on all individuals across the Balkans, everywhere, that undermine the stability in the region. Second thing, uh, I'm afraid that the Balkans can actually become, especially now with Ukraine, another place where uh, there will be, actually the Russians are already, you know, moving companies there and doing businesses and people are moving there, um, another uh, hub for um 
for dirty money, for Russian dirty money. So that's something that has to be investigated across, you know, the Balkans and what are to basically to monitor more. And in terms of the limits, I mean, Dalibor just mentioned Hungary. I mean, Hungary is a great ally of Serbia and a great ally of, of Vladimir Putin. And uh, also the willingness of uh, Hungary to support such sanctions will be really um, challenged over there. So maybe it's not that the whole European Union should act, but maybe states on a bilateral basis. Ivana, our time is, uh, is we've gone longer than we usually do, but it seemed to have to have flown by. It's so wonderful to see you again. Uh, you've brought actually a uh, at least a small ray of sunshine to what has been a pretty bleak couple of months of this podcast. So that that is wonderful too. And uh, we do promise that that we'll uh, have you back. You were part of the original conspiracy uh, for this uh, project. And so we don't want you to stray too far. From me, Giselle Donnelly and... Julia Zoja and... Dalibor Rohach and also one of the podcast dogs. <laughs> That's yes. right. Yes, uh, I think that was uh, Yulia's dog, or <laughs> my <laughs> yes, hound dog is yeah, semi okay. balkanized. <laughs> well, uh, thanks to everyone for listening to the Eastern Front. Our podcast is dedicated to learning the security challenges that have arisen along the line from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more of our episodes and additional content on our website at aei.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please be in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod. That's all one word. Um, uh, and so, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thanks so much, Ivana, and goodbye to everyone. Until next time.